So we continue our study now as we go through uh, the Sermon on the Mount and, uh, and the Gospel of Matthew more fully. And this morning we come to the Lord's Prayer. My, uh, my grandfather, he immigrated from Norway in 1949, and I was able to travel back with him to Norway three different times when I was a kid and, and when I was a young adult. And he was from a town that's about an hour north of Oslo, a town called Sarpsborg, Norway. And Sarpsborg is a town that had a thriving paper mill in it. But with a thriving paper mill comes the smell of a thriving paper mill. And what I remembered as a kid being there is that no one seemed to be able to smell the paper mill except for me. Because the familiarity seemed to have dulled the effect of the smell. And I get the sense of the home country every time I drive out Highway 14 towards Washougal. Because that exact same smell is in Camas, Washington. But when you live there, it becomes so familiar that you don't smell it anymore. And so we come to a text today that is probably the most well-known passage in all of the scriptures, the Lord's Prayer. And there's a danger in our familiarity with it. There is the danger that we're dull to it. There is the danger that we think that we already know it. There's the danger of not being able to be instructed in it this morning. But let's together acknowledge our familiarity with this danger Uh, this danger of familiarity, and ask God to open our eyes and that by his spirit he would show us the marvelous truths that are in his holy word. So I'll read the text to us and we'll ask God for illumination and freshness as we look at the text. I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to start actually back at verse 5. I'm going to read through verse 15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we long to be instructed by your word, and we confess our familiarity with this passage, and we confess that we are potentially dulled to it, and we repent of that. And we turn to you now with uh, humble and open hearts that we might receive from your word. We ask, God, that you would instruct us. We pray, Lord, that we would be pupils first and not critics Lord, help me as I preach, Lord, this text on prayer, how I long to grow as a man in prayer. Lord, I think I don't even understand always what it is to commune with you in prayer, and I just hope and pray that through the preaching of your word, 
I would even be instructed through the word and by your spirit. We ask God and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So the point of the passage this morning is fairly simple. The point of the passage is this, that the primary purpose of prayer is to get God. The primary purpose of prayer is to get God. We're going to unpack that under three headings. One is two models of prayer, cosmic prayer, and practical prayer. Two models of prayer, cosmic prayer, and practical prayer. And we're going to look at how the primary purpose of prayer is to get God. There's two models of prayer. These two models of prayer are actually two ways of praying that should be avoided. And it's prayer that comes to us in verses 5 and 6. That's one model. And the second model is verses 7 and 8. And you could describe each of these, these two ways as one is sort of a religious way to pray. And second model to avoid is a non-religious way to pray. And over the years, I've heard people say to me several times that I've tried praying, but it didn't work. I've tried going to God with my needs and, and so on, and it simply didn't work. And I would suggest that Jesus is suggesting in this text, and he's telling us in this text, that if we've potentially and oftentimes used prayer in such a way that it hasn't been designed. We've often used prayer in a way that it hasn't been designed. So first, this religious way of praying, this five and six. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. So maybe you, something comes to your mind here of some kind of religious fanaticism. Maybe you, 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 uh, this, the idea of, of, of street preaching or something comes to your mind. But I think what's more meant here about these street corners uh, is, is more like a town square. It's more it's where the streets are actually coming together. And this is the kind of prayer I think that Jesus has in mind here that would happen at a large public kind of event. It's a public kind of event where people would, would pray. And it's, it's sort of like when the President of the United States, when he addresses the nation from the Oval Office. Something significant needs to be communicated. Think of George W. Bush after 9-11, sitting in the Oval Office. You know, it's something that presidents don't do very often. Uh, President Bush did it six times. President Obama did it three times. And at the end, though, of every address from the Oval Office, what does the President of the United States say? May God bless America. May God bless America. This, I think, is what Jesus is talking about. Now, is there anything necessarily wrong in doing that? Of course not. But what Jesus is getting at is he's saying that these people in verse 5 do not have an interior prayer life. They don't have an interior prayer life. He tells them to go into secret instead, assuming that they don't often go in secret or ever. The outside appearance doesn't match the inside. He says, when you pray, go into your room. These people simply don't have an interior prayer life. They see prayer as a way of fitting in. It's not a connection to God, but it's a connection to some kind of social order. It's a connection to some kind of tradition. It's a connection to people, maybe. But it's not a connection to God. So how do you know? How do you know in your own life? How do you know in your own life if your prayer is simply something that's just an external function, 
so that you can know how to connect with other Christians, you know, to, that you're doing the right social norms in, in, in the right setting. Are you a hypocrite? How do you know? Because when you do go into the prayer closet, you don't have anything to say. When you go into the prayer closet, there isn't something that passionately desires to actually know God, to talk with him, to commune with him. When there, ask yourselves, when there is no circumstantial pressure to pray, do you actually pray? If you haven't been asked at the end of a, prayer, of, a, of a community group meeting or you haven't been asked at a meal to pray, there's no social pressure, no circumstantial prayer, pressure to pray, do you pray? Is it just the environment that makes you pray? Because so often it is the environment that makes us to pray and there really isn't an internal prayer life to know God. Your prayer life isn't marked by a growing, passionate, enduring, life-changing dependency on God. What's striking about this text is I was meditating on it this week and with some help from Jonathan Edwards is that this is the acid test for Jesus to know if someone is a hypocrite. It's not sexual ethics, you know, we think someone that, that walks around saying that they're morally pure and we secretly know that, you know, that they, they have an affair on the side. Or someone that uh, acts, uh, you know, particularly generous, but we know that they wake, make far much more money than they, than they lead on and they're really not all, all that generous. That's not how Jesus is ultimately telling us what hypocrisy is. Jesus is ultimately defining what it is to be a hypocrite in terms of prayer. Do you have a private prayer life? It's, this, this, is, this is from Jonathan Edwards, who's a 17th century preacher. He said, there is only one thing that you don't do for show in the Christian life. There's only one thing that you don't do for show in the Christian life, and that is secret prayer. That's private prayer. It's the only thing that you just do for God that no one else knows about. No one else commends you for. No one else knows. Everything else is seen. And the sermon that Edwards wrote on this as a title of a sermon that only Edwards could do, Hypocrites Deficient in the Duty of Prayer. (laughs) Hypocrites Deficient in the Duty of Prayer. And he says it's a very dangerous place to be. Here's one quote from that sermon. He says, hypocrites never counted the cost of perseverance in seeking God and of following him to the very end of life. To continue in constant prayer with all perseverance to the end of the life requires much care, requires watchfulness, requires labor. For much opposition is made by the flesh, the world, and the devil. And Christians meet with many temptations to forsake this practice. He that would persevere in this duty must be laborious continually. But hypocrites never count the cost of such labor. They were never prepared in the disposition of their minds to give their lives to the service of God and to the duties of religion. It is therefore no great wonder if they are weary and give out after they've continued for a while as their affections are gone and they find that prayer has just grown irksome and tedious. Everything you do in the Christian life is seen except a secret and private prayer life. And this is the acid test that the Lord Jesus gives us for hypocrisy. So that's the religious group. 
They pray that they might be seen, and they pray to sort of uh, ceremonialize and sanctify certain situations. But the second is non-religious, starting at verse 6. He says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. So now he's even switching and calling them Gentiles. He called one the religious groups. He said they're in synagogues, so we can assume they're religious. Now he also says, and don't do it like the Gentiles do, which is a term that Jesus is using to say the non-religious. And he uses this phrase here, and it's a phrase that doesn't occur anywhere else in all of Greek literature. Not does it not only occur in the Bible. It doesn't occur in all of Greek literature, this word for... um, this word for empty phrases, uh, it's, it's, you can define it as a kind of speech pattern of one who stammers, or the use of the same words again and again and again, or to speak without thinking. Empty phrases is how ESV translates it. I think another translation that could be better is just babbling. It's just babbling talk. But what's striking here is that I don't think non-religious people think they pray. <laughs> So he's saying, don't pray like the Gentiles do. So then what's he getting at? It seems that Jesus is pointing to a universal human condition, and that prayer is the involuntary reaction of the heart. That there's a, okay, here's the, here's the snarky way to say it, okay? And this is the way that people have said it snarky over the years, right? Uh, there's no atheists in foxholes, Right? There's no atheists in foxholes. That when the rubber meets the road, when you're in the fight of your life, when you're truly in the thick of it, people deep down in their hearts know that there's a God and they cry out to him. In a sense, that is what Jesus is saying. He's saying that prayer is the involuntary reaction of the heart. He's saying that in the depths of your heart, despite what you think with your intellect, you know there is a God. And the text says, they think they will be heard for their many words. It's a way of using God to get what you want. It's using prayer like a strategy. It's using prayer uh, like people have often said, I've tried prayer and it didn't work. There's a certain strategy to it. There was a certain end goal that you had in mind. You tried it, it didn't work. So how does prayer work? How does prayer work then? If those are two models of Jesus telling us, don't do it this way, verses five all the way down to verse eight, he tells us instead how it does work. And this section here, you could break up uh, into three cosmic petitions and three practical petitions. So point two is cosmic prayer. Point three is going to be practical prayer. And with each, inside of each of these two sections, verses 9 and 10, there's three petitions, and in verses 11 to 13, there's three petitions. And I'm suggesting that the first three are cosmic, or they're, they're global, they're big, they're, they're, they're not necessarily on the ground, and the second three, they are, they're practical. They're on the ground, they're day in, day out, stuff of life that we need. But first, what we must understand is the way that our Lord opens his prayer. He opens it with these words, our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Do we understand our sonship? 
do we understand our adoption by God the Father? The God that we come to is not some deistic type God who doesn't know us, who doesn't understand us, who doesn't really care about us. God the Father that we come to is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has adopted us as sons and daughters through the shed blood of his own Son. This is the Father who knows everything you need before you ever even ask him. That's what verse 8 says. Isn't that amazing for the, your Father? He calls him your Father. This is Jesus, a Son of God, who's known the Father for all eternity, and he looks to people like you and me, and he says that his Father is your Father. Your Father knows what you need before you even ask him. You know the needs of your own kids. You care for them. You love them. You know them. You give them everything that they need because they belong to you. And now, my friends, you belong to the Father because of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has brought you into the family so that he even looks at you and me and he says, your father knows what you need before you even ask him. And the Bible tells us there are only two choices for our father. Either God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, or Satan. Jesus gives us these sobering words in John eight forty four. He says, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. But our Lord Jesus says, our heavenly father knows what we need before we ever even ask him. He'll say in our, just a couple of verses in verse 32, he says, don't be anxious about food. Don't be anxious about drink. Don't be anxious about clothing because your heavenly father knows that you need them all. In other words, Jesus wants us to feel the fatherhood of God as an expression of his readiness to meet our most basic needs. Ask yourself, my friends, Do you come to the Father in prayer with that kind of disposition? That he is your Father, that knows what you need before you ever ask him, that longs to commune with you and be with you in prayer, that loved you so much that he sent his Son in the unity of the Spirit that he might bring you into his family. Now these three petitions. Number one, hallowed be your name. This is probably something that we don't readily think about and probably don't even necessarily think to understand. But this stands at the top of the whole prayer. And it's different in some sense than the other five petitions. The other five petitions will be your kingdom come, your will be done, and it'll be a prayer for bread, for forgiveness, and for freedom from temptation. But this prayer is a little bit different, this first one, hallowed be your name, because this petition speaks directly to the human heart. This petition speaks directly to the human heart. What do I mean by that? Well, uh, the original Greek construction here is a little bit odd because it's a third-person imperative. An imperative is a command. So in a sense, what you're saying is we are commanding God to do something. 
hallowed be your name. The word hallowed is simply the word holy, or the word sanctify. So in a sense, the prayer is, God, make your name holy to us. Make your name holy to us. And there's nothing special about uh, God's name necessarily. God's name just simply represents God. So in a sense, God, make yourself holy to us. Now, this is what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean for us to simply know that God is holy. It can't mean that. It can't mean for us to simply know that God is holy because even the demons know that God is holy. Mark one twenty four says this, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know you are the Holy One of God. The demon knows. He knows that God's holy. So then what does it mean? It means for us to revere, to treasure, to love, to value, to enjoy God. Hallowed be your name means make who you are, the beauty of your holiness. Make my heart treasure that. Make my heart value that. Make my heart long for that. Make my heart find its rest in that. Make my heart find its functional security, satisfaction, joy, comfort, all of it in who you are. Because the demons don't do that. They hate God. They know he's holy, but they hate him. And this is a prayer that we would know God's holiness and that we would revere it. We would esteem it. It's a condition of the heart. It's different than the other five petitions. And in a sense, I think you could suggest, and I'm going to suggest, that all five of the other petitions are a way in which we revere and esteem God. The way in which physical and practical bread is given to us is a way in which our hearts would esteem and revere God. We'll get to that. The ultimate purpose of God in all five of these things is that we would revere his name, that our hearts would be fully engaged in loving God. Psalm 5, verse 11 says, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them sing everlasting joy. Spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. The primary goal of prayer is to get God. And that is why this is at the top of the prayer because this is a a matter of the heart. So if you come to me and you say prayer didn't work, (laughs) what did you ask for every day? What did you ask for every morning? Did you get up every morning and go to your prayer closet and say, God, I want you. Make your name holy to me. Make me revere who you are. Make you to be the highest treasure in my heart. I guarantee if you pray that every single morning, day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, year after, year after year, God will do it. He may not fix your cat. He may not give you the job you wanted. He may not make your bank account increase, but your heart will find rest and joy and satisfaction in him. There's a striking place when Luke uh, teaches us in the gospel of Luke, when, when, when the Lord Jesus in Luke's gospel teaches us the Lord's prayer. It's in Luke chapter 11. 
Verse two says, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. You know what's right before that? At the end of Luke chapter 10, it's a story of Mary and Martha. Listen to this. Luke 10, 38 to 42. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me alone to serve? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion. Mary found the one thing that's necessary. Jesus is saying, everything else is negotiable. Everything else is negotiable. But there is one thing that's necessary. There is one thing that is essential. There is one thing that you must fight with all your life for. Mary is sitting at Lord Jesus' feet. Vanessa and I are meditating and memorizing this week, Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. One thing. This is David. He's a king, he's a general. He's got problems with his kids. He's got many responsibilities. He's got far more responsibilities than anybody in this room has. Way more. And he says, one thing. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. My friends, I'm in a time in my life with a lot of trials, a lot of pains, a lot of questions about you know, what's going on in the life of this church, people that are leaving the faith. What does God have next for us? And I see my life just growing in anxiety and frustration. And this text is teaching me that I have to learn to commune with God in a private prayer life. I don't know how to do it. I don't do it very well. I don't do it as consistently as I ought. But I know that if I don't do this, I won't be in pastoral ministry in 10 years. One thing, I desire one thing, that I might gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to acquire in his temple. My friends, let's learn to do this together. Let's learn to commune with God in prayer together. But we can't ever tell each other about it. Just kidding. To behold his sweetness, to behold his glory, not to just know about it. I don't want to just know about it, okay? The demons know about it. I want to know it. I want to actually taste it. I want to actually experience it. I want to actually enjoy it. Don't ever ask for anything else in your life until there is a sense on your heart of who God really is. 
And those other two cosmic prayers, your kingdom come, your will be done, that is the lordship of God in your life. The cause of all of our problems in life are a refusal of God's reign and rule. That's where our problems are from. We reject his kingly authority. We reject his lordship in our lives. We serve other things, and our spiritual and our psychological and our cultural and our material problems come in. This prayer, then, for your kingdom to come and your will to be done is a prayer for God to extend his reign and rule into all aspects of our lives, that his sovereign power would be wielded in the corners and the crevices of my heart and your heart and my life and your life. His kingdom come is a prayer for God's rule to come in your life and in the world. We're asking God to reign in our lives so that we want to obey him, so that we desire to obey him, so that we delight to obey him. And your will be done is a very similar prayer. (laughs) Your will be done. This is how Luther prayed it. He says, grant us the grace to bear willingly all sorts of sickness, poverty, disgrace, suffering, and adversity to recognize that this is your divine will to crucify ours. That's a challenging way to put it. But this is what it is for God to conform our wills to his. Your will be done is saying, crucify my will. I have my desires, my aspirations, my uh, fill in the blank, but God, I want yours. I want you to conform me and to have a mind and a heart that thinks after the things that you think, to desire the things that you desire, to want the things that you want. Some of the, I, was, I was talking about this passage earlier this week with some of the other elders, and we were just thinking about all the, the places where the scriptures are telling us to pray, and to pray incessantly, and to pray continually. Places like James 4, where it says, you don't have because you don't ask, and you ask and not receive because you ask wrongly, to spend it on your passions. Or Matthew 7, 7 says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened for you. Or Matthew 21, 22, Jesus says, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive it if you have faith. These prayers have so long perplexed me to understand the, the, the correlation between Jesus saying, your father knows what you need before you ever even ask him. So there's a sense of, well, then why, why pray? Well, then, then Jesus over here says, you don't have because you don't ask. Ask and ask and ask again. So how does that line up? I think I'm starting to understand them. And I think it's this. Jesus is saying that there is a way of praying that we can pray in such a way that our wills can be conformed to his. And that we can pray in such a way that is in perfect accord with what he desires and longs for. The first prayer of our heart ought always be, God, make your name holy to me. Second prayer should always be, God, your kingdom come in my life. And third, God, your will be done. And I think the remarkable thing that the Lord Jesus is offering us in these kinds of prayers is he's saying, I will do that in your heart one day, 
so that you actually will pray things that are in perfect accord with my will. You can actually begin to think my thoughts after me. You can actually begin to desire the things that I desire, to want the things that I want, so that you're not so preoccupied with your own kingdom, your own will, but your desire is that my kingdom and my will would come. So that when you pray, you're actually praying in accord with the will and the mind of the Father. So point three, practical needs. The entire program of prayer is to get God. And there's three practical needs here. And the first one's in verse 11 for us. It's a prayer for daily bread. It's a prayer for our physical needs. Father, I'm not asking for a bounty of riches. I'm not asking that I could build bigger barns. Father, I'm simply asking for my basic needs to be met. Just give me enough. Just give me enough to live. The apostle said, with food and raiment, we will be content. Father, just give me enough so that I can make it through the day. I can live for your glory. I can revere your holy name. Would you give me what I need? Would you give me what I need for my body and my mind? I want to have a body and a mind that work. I want to be able to use my life. I want to spend my life for your glory. I want to give my life to my neighbors, my family, my kids, my spouse, my coworkers. I want to live for you. Will you give me what I need to do that? I miss the days when we were in college and we were much more dependent on God to provide for our daily needs. Much more dependent. I have story after story after story that happened between the time we were 20 and probably 28. I remember literally being at Multnomah and being out of money, not knowing how we're going to pay rent. And this didn't happen once. I don't think it happened twice. I think it happened multiple times. We would literally open up our mailbox and there would be cash in there. Just cash. I never to this day, I have no idea who it's from. God would provide for our daily needs. He would provide for us. I long for that. I don't want to get so insulated by American middle class culture that I don't long for God to provide my daily needs anymore. We get so insulated that we're not even hungry for him anymore. We're not dependent on him anymore. Father, I'm not asking for a bounty of riches. I'm just asking for bread. Just enough so I can live Second prayer, forgiveness. Father, I'm a sinner. I need to be forgiven every single day. Father, I'll despair. I'll become despondent for lack of forgiveness. I need deliverance from my guilt. I feel guilty every day because of my sin. I wake up in the morning feeling guilty for the things that I did the day before, the things I said, the way I didn't love people the way I should, the things I said to my wife, the unattentiveness I was towards my kids. I just wake up feeling like blah almost every day. Without forgiveness, I'm going to grow despondent. I'm going to grow weary. I'm not even going to want to get out of bed. (laughs) Father, forgive me. I need it. I need it desperately. I'll die if I have to bear my guilt every single day. Oh, and then this prayer. <laughs> Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our 
debtors. Man. We look at that and we think of the people that have offended us, the people that have wronged us, and we think it would be foolish of me to forgive that person. It would be unwise. I would be miserable if I did that. Do you know what you're asking of me, God? But in a sense, we're turning to God and asking him to do the same thing. For him to come to us and to act foolish or unwise or be miserable. When we don't forgive, we are acting, asking God to act foolishly towards us. But to the degree that we understand, my friends, the great debt that we've been forgiven, we'll have freedom in our lives. We'll have freedom in our lives to truly love, not hold grudges, let go of offenses against me. Because we know our Lord Jesus said, that this is the blood of my covenant, which I have poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And finally, this last practical need. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I've said that a couple times. I think a better translation is not talking about evil in general, but it's talking about um, the evil one, the enemy of your soul, the devil. I think what's in mind here is, is consider uh, that, that life is, is full of pleasures and pains. That's what our lives are, in a nutshell, marked by, pleasures and pains. And there's a temptation in both. When pleasures come, there's the temptation for us to idolize it. There's a temptation for us to not give God thanks for it, to not acknowledge that it's his, just loving care in our lives, you know? And we don't, maybe you haven't had to worry about money for a while. Maybe you, you, God did give you, you know, the ability to take a, a, a nice vacation. Maybe, maybe there's plenty of work right now. Maybe you're in a good season with your spouse, you know? Those are gifts from God. They're gifts from God. And there is a temptation for us to not acknowledge him and to give thanks to him and to appreciate him for it. And that's what the devil would have us do. The enemy of your soul would have you forget God in the midst of pleasure. But the pains of life come too. Disappointments, setbacks, failures. And the enemy of your soul would have you curse God. But have you cursed God in the midst of that? Say, God can't be good. He can't both be sovereign and good. So either he's not sovereign and he can't do anything about it, or he doesn't care. The enemy of your souls would have you stick your fists in the air in the midst of pains. But to deliver us from temptation, deliver us from the evil one, would be for us to trust God. For us to look to him in his sovereign care, to see him as the one who started the good work in us, to see him as the one that redeemed us, and to see that every detail of our lives is pointing us back to the first petition, hallowed be your name. Every detail of your life, every circumstance in your life is to burn away the dross of this world, to burn away the things that you lay hold of too tightly, the idols of your heart, and God will use the circumstances of your life. He'll use the trials of your life, the details of your life, so that you might revere him and him alone. So let me close with some application. 
and then I'll give us a hymn that encapsulates what I think is the whole purpose. Just a few applications. They're probably pretty obvious. But first is begin a private prayer life. Just wake up in the morning and go into your prayer closet, go into the bathroom, wherever it is, and just be alone with God. And if you don't know what to say, just pray this. The Lord was kind enough to give us a prayer. We should use it. Just pray, God, make your name holy to me. I know you're holy, but I want to treasure that. I want to experience that. I want to taste that. I want that to mark my day today. So that when I get miffed later in the day, when someone cuts me off, or when the unexpected bill comes, or when my coworker, whatever it is, the deadline is set back on me. God, I want to revere your name today in the midst of my circumstances. Second, come to the prayer meeting. We do a prayer meeting once a month. We've done it for eight years, and many of you have never come. Come to the prayer meeting where we meet with God together. We long for him together. We pray that his kingdom would come, his will would be done, that our lives would be conformed to him. Pray that his glory and his name, his majesty would be revered among us. Come to the prayer meeting. And third application, pray first and foremost for God. It's not bad, my friends, to pray for your circumstances. In fact, it's right to. It's right to attack our concerns and our needs head on. The Lord told us to. I mean, he told us to pray for our physical problems. He told us to pray for our moral problems, not leading us to temptation. He's a thousand times better than, uh, of a father than the best human father. His fatherhood means that he cares about every single one of the problems in our lives. He beckons us to come to him and to talk about them and ask for help. He knows what you need before you ask. And yet, don't make that your first prayer. Pray that you would revere his name. Let me close with this idea, this hymn, that everything in our lives, everything in our lives is designed in such a way that we would hallow the name of God. This is from I Ask the Lord. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love in every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. "'Twas he who taught me thus to pray, "'and he, I trust, has answered prayer. "'But it has been in such a way "'that I was almost drove to despair. "'I hoped that in some favored hour "'at once he'd answer my request "'and by his love's constraining power "'would subdue my sin and give me rest. "'Instead, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart "'and let the anger powers of hell "'assault my soul in every part. "'Yea, more... With his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, cast out my feelings, laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue this worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answered prayer for grace in faith. These inward trials I employ, from self and pride to set thee free, and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mightst find thine all in me. Let us pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for this prayer. Teach us to be a people that pray. Teach us to be a people that revere your name. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen.